This, this, this is straight, straight, straight out of Crumpton with your host, Greg Crumpton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Out of Crumpton. I'm Gabby Barr, and I am here with Mr. Greg Crumpton. Greg, how are you today? Gabby, I'm doing great. This is one of those rare treats for me when I get to talk to you twice in one day. So it's a double pleasure day for me. I'm really excited by this guest we have today because she is in an area of interest of mine. As a tradesperson that started the business and then exited a business, I think it's perfect, excuse me, to talk about some of the challenges associated with owning skilled trades uh, based company and, and what do you do with it when it grows up or eventually you grow up as the owner and decide what you want to do. So looking forward to it. I think it's going to be an enlightening day and maybe shed a little knowledge on a topic that doesn't get very much coverage. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I am excited to introduce Dr. Nanette Miner. She is the managing consultant at The Training Doctor LLC. Nanette, how are you doing today? I am great. Thanks for having me today. Well, we are thrilled to have you. It's always interesting to me, you know, when I think about the world, we tend to find these things that people don't think about until they have to think about it. And your your piece of the world kind of strikes me like that because, you know, people go through life and they're doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's this moment of clarity that comes to them and they go, okay, now what? So I think you get to help some people solve now what questions. But before we get going too deep, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and and a little background info. Sure. So I started the training doctor in 1991. I'm not a good employee. (laughs) I get bored very easily. So I realized that being a consultant allowed me to work with a lot of companies in one year and not look like a quitter. (laughs) So I've always worked in professional development, learning and development. In 2015, the U.S. Census came out and said that by 2030, all the boomers were going to be out of the workforce. And so the prior 25 years, my clients were mostly Fortune 100 companies. I got to see inside of the likes of Marriott, Pitney Bowes, General Electric, you you name it. And I realized when I heard that announcement from the U.S. Census that these big companies were not doing leadership development well. They were either waiting until they promoted somebody to a leadership role and then said, okay, now we want you to change your behavior. Now we're going to tell you, teach you how to do all these things that we never taught you before, but simultaneously you're taking on new functional responsibilities. So I just thought that was mean to kind of set people up like that. And, or the other option was the bigger companies that had a lot of money would do hypo programs, high potential programs. So they would hire like 300 people out of college and then put them in this three or four year rotation and presume that at some point that was going to make them a better future leader. But I always use Tom Brady and Johnny Manziel as my example there. Like you have a Heisman Trophy winner and a guy who was the 199th draft pick (laughs) the year he was drafted and nobody had any expectations for Tom Brady, but he had the right mindset and the right skill set. Whereas we don't even know where Johnny Manziel is these days, right? He flamed out in one year in the NFL. So I'm against choosing high potential people. I, and I'm against waiting until people, you know, just prove themselves technically and then go, okay, well, now that you're so technically good at what you do, why don't we make you a, a leader? So I actually started doing leadership development. My little tagline is back here, leadership from day one. My belief system is 
teach everybody leadership skills the minute they walk in the door. And by the time you're ready to promote them to a leadership role, they've already got the personal side of it down. But there came a kind of a wall for me in that everybody and their brother does leadership development. And I'm not disparaging anybody because it's all good. The point is, how was I going to differentiate myself? It was hard to say, but I'm going to start this process so much earlier in your business and it's going to be so much better for you <laughs> in the end. And then what I, what I really realized was what well, I'm doing is succession planning. Because if you don't have the leaders in your pipeline, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to go out of business. You're not going to be saleable. And most especially for owner, founder led companies that are in, in the trade. So I mostly work with construction industry firms, civil and civil construction industry firms that are owner founder led. So they, I mean, they can be hugely successful and they have been for decades, but now the owner would like to step aside and they don't have a pipeline. They've got a lot of underlings. They've got a lot of people who take direction from them, but they haven't developed their people to you know, be strategic and build the business and grow the business and maintain the business. And so everything is in that owner's brain and how will they step away? So, and it happened to my father. And that was kind of my aha moment is my, my dad just shut the door because he didn't think that far ahead. And when you're busy running the business, that totally makes sense. <laughs> You've got a lot of balls in the air. So you don't think about the future. And I mean, how many people, this is a personal example, how many people don't have wills, right? Even though we know we all should have a will because anything can happen at any time. So a succession plan is basically a will for your business. And I say to folks, it's not about you leaving your career. It's about the health of your company. No, that, that's a great point. You know, my, my industry, HVAC, uh, we encounter a lot of owner, founder, operators. You know, it, depending on the size of the entity, you know, it varies on the degree of sophistication. But our industry, my industry, has done a horrible job in history of uh, middle level and up leadership because what typically happens for us is we get a technician and he or she is just lights out awesome in the field. And what do we do? We say, oh, you're so good at this. We're going to make you a service manager. So Friday, they park their truck. Monday, they're a service manager with zero understanding of what the hell they're supposed to even do, much less we probably haven't even thought about it because when Bob was here for 25 years, Bob just handled it. Hopefully we're getting better as an industry. I, I think we are as we become my, my peers, as you mentioned, the baby boomers are retiring. The incoming cohort of folks seem to be thinking a little bit more strategically as opposed to just making sure we get a warm body on a job site. So I think that's good. Interesting analogy with Brady and Mansell. I hadn't thought about Johnny in a while, but uh, right, <laughs> exactly my point, Greg. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you typically get engaged? Like people get to a point of okay, I need to do something, then they think, okay, I got to call somebody who knows something. Is that typically how you get engaged? No, we do a lot of outbound marketing because nobody knows that this is a lane and it really is not. I mean, I literally know of one other consulting firm that does what I do. And that's run by two women, too, which I think is interesting <laughs> that it's women who are taking on this uh, mantle of I just feel like I'm saving small business. I really feel like by 2030, a lot of small businesses are just going to go over a precipice because they weren't prepared. And honestly, seven years is not enough time to get prepared either. For, for a good succession plan, you need a good 10 years. And it all depends on how new your your employees are to begin with. Do you have people who've even been with your company for seven to 10 years? If you haven't, I mean, there's a lot of 
of knowledge and capability that has to be learned and transferred to them. It takes time. Leadership takes time. It's not like you go to a class on constructive feedback and suddenly you're great at it because it just doesn't come up every day. So you only get good with practice and that can take years. We had a call this morning where we were talking about scar tissue and learning opportunities. You have to go through some stuff to get good at some other stuff. So um, no point well taken. So the company I work for, Service Logic, we really look at trying to build our pipeline of talent. We really do from, because we buy well-run, highly functional, profitable HVAC companies. But there's a wide variety of what you buy, what's acquired is all based on that founder's vision. So how deep is their bench strength? You know, some companies aren't even seven years old. You know, I mean, we have acquired companies that are really, really good companies, but they're young companies. So you have that, not only the technical tribal knowledge, which is a, that's a whole nother topic for another day, but the tribal knowledge of that business, to your point, you know, it has to be learned. What's the culture? How do you espouse your beliefs and collections? You know, what, what is your process? That's really interesting. And what do you find, like when, when you interview your, your clients for the first time or your first meeting, what are some of the moments that give them that, oh man, I really do need to think about it. Is it life experiences like death or separations, divorces? What, what triggers some of some thoughts of people needing to get there? It's one of two things. It's somebody who wants to retire and enjoy you know, whatever years they have left, or it's a slightly bigger company that's more corporate and they've just put in a new president or CEO. And it's generally the new president or CEO who will call me and say, well, now I know how I got here, but I don't know how to get anybody else. You know, they took me under their wing. I've been with the company 30 years or whatever. You know, I know how I got my role, but I also know that I have a very young staff coming up behind me. And so, so the problem we have in companies, and I know that you'll concur, is that we have generally a layer of very experienced people who could be Gen X, could be boomers. And then we have a big layer of millennials and Gen Z's who are just coming up and nobody, because the boomer generation was so big, nobody really got anybody younger prepared because even when a boomer retired, another boomer replaced them. They say of Gen X, they don't want leadership roles because they were ignored for so long. They're basically in independent workers, you know, sole, sole workers. They're happy to stay that way. We really have to put our bets on the millennials, but nobody's given them that development. So the good news is the millennials are, it, the oldest are in their forties right now. So we, we can have a good 20 years or more with them still, you know, working and we can mold them. I hate to use that word, but we can mold them to be excellent leaders. But again, it takes time. So generally it's a, a president or CEO who's been in, been in their job for one year. And we just have, you know, like I said, we do a lot about bomb marketing. We just happen to call at the right time. And they're like, yes, I have been thinking about this. <laughs> Last week I hosted a, a group of our companies and, and the safety professionals from each of those companies over in uh, Louisville. And our keynote was a, a fellow, uh, actually not far from you, he lives on the North Carolina coast, Tim Moore. We hired him to come in as our keynote to talk about generational uh, communication techniques. And we were talking about there's five, six, depending on how, how your company's built, different generations in the workforce right now. Our topic was how do you talk to a boomer versus how do you talk to an Xer? 
and get the same message across because it's different, different style. And I'm going, I'm, I'm going by memory, which is kind of scary, but I think millennials are the biggest generation coming as far as the number of people, which I think is good because as you stated, you know, we've got to be able to transfer the knowledge and help that generation because they're actually more of them than there were boomers, I think, or, or damn near the same number. So that's good as far as having a big group of people who, you know, are able to, maybe not willing to, or don't know they're willing to yet. So Correct. Good point. But that, you know, I always think about that. And we, and we talk about it on here a good bit is the generational difference, because I'm the youngest boomer. I was born in 64. So as we acquire companies, as service logic, my company, we inherit and buy founder owners who are now they stay on as presidents. And it's really, we're having a inrush or lack of a better word, a turnover in our president's roles because these guys are retiring and we have an excellent group of 40, 45 year olds coming through right now. And I'm so excited by them. They're not going to have to transition the company because we're private, private equity back. So that's already happened. But it's really nice to see these younger ladies and guys coming through that are thinking about bench strength. They're thinking about how do we run our company? And, and they have a lot of autonomy at, at our companies. Uh, how do they build their bench locally to support that mission? And, and that's been fun to watch. I'm so excited by seeing that happen because I love my peers, but some of my peers, especially the older ones, they think differently, you know, just because of generational differences. Absolutely. It's good to get a little fresh thought process, a little fresh meat in the, in the sausage, so to speak. You know, I mostly work with um, construction industry firms and the older generation is definitely a, uh, I paid my dues, you pay your dues perspective. You know, it takes, and it does in construction take decades to learn all the nuances of that. Um, so it does, you know, there is some merit to the paying the dues, but we also don't have enough time to let the boomers retire and then go, oh, that's okay. <laughs> the millennials will pick up the slack eventually. We, there is no eventually. They, they are going to have to be up and running. And the thing about, one of the things we have to think about with millennials, I'm glad to hear that you have a group of up and coming 40-ish folks that are enthusiastic, is that a lot of the younger generations are wary of being in leadership roles because they've seen their parents get screwed over and they see how stressful it is and how you really, there is no work-life balance. And so a lot of them are like, yeah, nah, I'll just stay in my worker bee role or at least I have more control. So here's a question. And I, I think about this question a lot. Is there a personality trait or multiple personality traits that regardless of the age, they're going to be at sellers. They want, a, a person wants to do more. And I, I was thinking about this yesterday. So I have a friend who, who stayed with us and he's from Norway. And he was talking about his two kids and his kids are 24 and 22. The daughter is the eldest, she's 24. His exact words yesterday at lunch, she hit the ground running, meaning there's no stop, she's on go, she's exercising, she's working, she's doing this, doing that. And his son is somewhat more, um, let's say laid back in his approach to life. It frustrates the daughter that the son is like this. 
have that same dynamic going on with my kids. Understood. <laughs> you know, it makes me think, and I think about myself in this situation some, is there a trait that regardless of your age, you're going to be a high performer or is that totally learned behavior? What, what's your take on that? I'm not a psychologist. I've done no research into this, but I would say the one trait that would be encouraging to me is a person who asks a lot of questions because it means they want to know more. They want to learn more. They want to understand the reasoning behind things. They are good at making connections. Here's a problem. I worked in L&D for decades, right? What I realized in 2015, in addition to the fact that the boomers were going to leave and we had done a terrible job of preparing future leaders, the other side of that coin was we had created a whole bunch of specialists in training and not enough generalists because for 20 plus years, if I designed a class for finance, the only people who came to that class was finance. We never had an HR person come in or an ops person come in. And by the same token, we never sent anybody in finance out to learn how HR ops work. So we have a whole bunch of really smart people who only know one thing. And again, with the smaller companies, you know, if you're a hundred or 200 person company, you don't have a whole lot of departments you need somebody who knows how the whole company runs. They have to understand every aspect of it because you just don't have enough bodies to, to run individual companies. And so I actually switched my market at that time from the Fortune 100 to small and medium-sized companies because I do feel an obligation to, I guess probably because my dad was self-employed my whole life. You know, if they don't figure this out soon and I don't help them, they will just close their doors and have to go out of business, which is a shame. Small businesses make up 99% of all the companies in America. And families make up those small businesses. So not only does the hard work and, and all of the good and the goodwill that the company has built, you know, all those people have to go find gainful employment elsewhere. It's devastating to me when somebody just calls it quits. And because they just, just because they didn't have the forethought, right? I mean, they don't have to call it quits. They just didn't think far enough ahead think what you're doing is super valuable. So first of all, thank you for doing that. What, how do you go about outbound marketing? Are you, do you get companies that are in small business organizations? Do you target like your demographic you're looking for? How do you go about marketing? Yes. So I target my demographic. I know exactly you know who fits my profile. There's probably only four companies in every state that fit my profile. So my target market list is pretty small. Quarterly free events for them. This Thursday, I'm doing a live stream on LinkedIn on career paths and why companies need to have them because younger generations want to know that there's a career for them and not just a job. And it also helps you to build your leadership pipeline when you can say, okay, if you would like to be here in seven years, you probably have these three different jobs in those seven years, but that makes them more valuable to you. Um, so a lot of my prospects are also on LinkedIn. So we target them through LinkedIn, do a lot of free things for them. We have a you know targeted outbound list that they get mailings from us and phone calls. And, you know, it's like any, I guess I've been consulting so long. It's like anything in consulting when they need you, they need to know, they need to remember you. So they're, you're not going to call somebody and go, oh, yes, it has happened twice this year where we've called somebody and go, yes, that's exactly what I've been looking for. Thank heavens you called us. But um, mostly they're like, OK, well, you know, just keep me on your list so that when I'm ready and having the name, the training doctor is a very clever name. I actually got a call a few years ago from a guy who said, I don't remember your name. We met on a plane, but I remembered your car, your company's name. And so I just Googled you and found you. <laughs> 
being that you're in South Carolina, did you grow up in this area? Give us a little bit of background on how you got, like where your dad was and what he did and that kind of stuff. That's so, interesting. To me. So I grew up in Connecticut. My dad was a manufacturer sales rep for uh, aircraft parts. We lived in the dead center of Connecticut because that way you could get in any direction within like an hour. And so when I first became self-employed, as I said, most of my clients were Fortune 100 clients because it was so easy for me to get to New York and North and New Jersey where they all were. So they say you're never an expert in your own backyard, right? So I never had any clients in Connecticut in the whole 20 something years that I was there. But no, I've been in South Carolina almost, almost 20 years now. I just can't take winter. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't always live by the beach, but in the last, well, we moved here uh, like eight years ago. So I've lived by the beach for the last eight years. I was in Connecticut last week driving through and I love the state. I think it's beautiful with all those granite rock walls that people have built such a beautiful state, but it is cold as crap in the winter. Yep. We had one of those rock walls completely around our house that my dad built. <laughs> now are most of those rocks off the property or they bring them in? No, it was off the property in order to build the foundation. When my parents added onto our house when I was born, they actually had to blast for the second foundation. And that's the granite state. Is that the moniker of it? They called it, Le no, I think New Hampshire is the granite state or Vermont. Um, no, but it was ledge rock. I don't know if ledge rock is the same as granite, probably not, but. Gabby, have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen all the rock walls in uh, Connecticut? I would say like, Yes and no. Uh, not to like a crazy extent. Well, I I feel like sh I feel like you guys are talking about like a lot of rock walls, and I, the times that I've been to Connecticut, I don't feel like I've seen like that many. But I have family who live out in I'm blanking on where they live now, but they live out in Connecticut. They have a rock wall. If you're driving through the country in Connecticut, you see a lot of rock walls. And through the country, for sure. Yeah. It's noticeable to me because I grew up in the Atlanta, East Atlanta area, and they're heavily granite quarried out there. Yeah. So we had a lot of rock walls as well. So when the first time I went to Connecticut, I'm like, wow, I didn't know this was here. But so it, when I when I grew up standing in my parents' driveway, about 10 miles, you could see carving of Stone Mountain. So, wow. Yeah. So we got free fireworks. Uh, on yes. all the holidays. <laughs> wow. Cool. So I'm, I'm thinking about companies and, and you concentrate on construction and civil type work. Do you think this is a problem in every trade? Not every, not even every trade, every industry. I mean, I honestly could do this in any industry. I just really like the personality types that work in construction. They're very, um, you know, let's just get down to business, <laughs> cut through, the, cut to the, cut to the chase. We don't have time to kill. I like that personality. We we were talking about it, Gabby and I, this morning with the black hat wearing cowboys that we uh, are in our industry because our technicians are out on their own, usually working by themselves on a rooftop or in a basement, and there's nobody else coming. You know, it's their deal. They've got to figure it out, and it's like. You know, we've got these cowboys that aren't easily wrangled. I like that. I like that personality, too, because, again, it's no BS, no fluff. You get what you got, and let's get on with it. So I would think you in business, that's a good model because you quickly know whether you're going to have an engagement or not. You don't have a lot of dating. You're either you're courting or you're going to see them later. Exactly, 100%. That tends to be a trait that is definitely in the uh, construction mentality. So Gabby, I'm curious, uh, Nanette was talking about different 
demographic and, and leadership. And what do you feel like your group of people, where, where are you at your peers with wanting to be leaders or wanting to be independent contractors versus working for a company and kind of in the herd? How, what should, what does your group think? I mean, just based off of like my friends who are currently like in the work world and thinking about their futures, because I think this is, you know, for my demographic and especially big time for thinking about our futures. You know, a lot of us are in our first jobs of our career and trying to figure out, you know, is this where we're happy? Do we potentially want to do something else? Do we really like where we are? So thinking about my group, there's definitely a lot of us who are really starting out our careers. We're really early on. Most of us are kind of working our first professional jobs within different various industries. And so I think, you know, talking to a lot of my friends and people that I know that are around my age, a lot of them are not particularly happy with like where they're at. (laughs) I think, you know, sometimes it has to do with the company they're working for. Sometimes it has to do with the fact that, you know, they, they needed a job when they graduated college. And so it wasn't like, hey, we get to choose the job that we like and the field that we're passionate about. We, it was more of like, we just need a job to like pay our bills because it's expensive these days. Kind of from that perspective, I, I definitely have friends who are on the other side. My one friend, she is in law school and she is passionate about what she does. I mean, she talks to me on the phone and she can go on about law school for like an hour and a half, two hours. And I'm like, girl, I am so happy that you love something so much. Good for you. But I cannot imagine. (laughs) Like, I mean, she's once you go to law school, you're putting in like 60 hour weeks just in school to intern or have your your own side job as like a paralegal or something it's it's crazy i can't imagine doing what she does when she when she gets a job there's so much so much more learning i have a friend who runs professional development for law firms and she says it takes two to three years once that they're hired to teach them to be lawyers because you actually don't learn to be a lawyer in law school but for her she loves it and because she loves it her end goal is to open her own practice she wants she wants her own firm that's what she wants that's kind of her end goal. And obviously for her, she knows it's going to be, you know, down the line because she's going to have to work for another firm and figure out lawyering and stuff first. But that is her end goal. Whereas I think a lot of my other friends, she's kind of like the outlier of my friends. My other friends are more just kind of like getting through the day type deal where it's like, yeah, like if a promotion like came, I would probably take it because promote you know, more experience, more money, that's great. But there, I think it's to the point where like, we're still so young that we're figuring out what it is we want. And so the idea of like accepting a promotion or the idea of furthering up in a company, although it's really good because you get the more, you get more experience, it's almost like locking you in a little more and you kind of feel a little more I guess, stuck in the industry, a little more stuck in the company. And there's kind of less flexibility once you start moving up to move out. And so I think that's kind of where like a lot of my friends and people that I've spoken to my age are kind of sitting right now where it's like, do I want to move up or do I want 
to try something else? Is this not where I feel that I belong? And that's a big shift, you know, from where people have been, because you just said working 60 hours a week, you couldn't imagine that. Hell, I worked 80 hours a week more than once in my life for the reason of getting more education, getting more exposure, what have you. And I didn't think about other options. I had the ability to go to work and make money. So that's what I did. It's just an interesting dynamic that that your group, y'all are at a place of inflection where you sit back and think about this as opposed to just automatically saying, yeah. Well, one of the things that Gabby said too, which aligns with this live stream I'm doing on Thursday with the career paths is that if you, if you as an employer really want longevity, so you don't have so much turnover and you don't have so much recruitment that you have to do because you have the turnover, you really need to create career paths that have lateral moves built into them. So that way we get to my need, my, my belief system that you need people who know more than one department, but it also keeps people stimulated and, you know, all right, I took whatever job I took in this company. I like the company. I don't love the job. Where else can I go? Most companies don't have a plan for you. And it's not that hard to make up the plan. You just have to ask them a few questions. And they're like, oh, yes, well, with Gabby's skills, we could actually put her in sales. We could actually put her in, you know, digital market. We could put her in a lot of places. We just never thought about it. She never asked. Well, if you're young, you don't know to ask. You don't know what the opportunities are. You're not, you don't have that big picture view of the company. You just started. So it's very important, in my opinion, that companies have career paths that are layered with learning paths so that, okay, if you want to be here in five years, you have to have these experiences, but you also have to take this learning. Like one of the things that I recommend is four-year learning paths for young people who are coming into companies aligned with this leadership from day one. So that as a manager, when I'm giving a performance review and you've been with the company three years, I know at year three, Gabby should have these skills because we designed a learning path for her and an experiential path. And if she doesn't have these skills, then we have something to talk about. But at year three, not only Gabby, but everybody should have these skills, right? And at year five, everybody should have these skills. And so you're constantly up-leveling the capabilities of your employees, but you're also not asking them at some point in their career to then change their behavior because you never, <laughs> you never taught it to them, right? <laughs> so what's like the five most important things you want all your employees to do well? You want them to understand financials. You want them to communicate better. You want them to work collaboratively. You want them to have critical thinking skills. Put that in their fi first five-year plan, along with some experiential you know, options with the, with the career, and they will stay with you. But to Gabby's point, if all I see is up and there is no more up, I might as well go out. What, what's ironic about it, though, is that the, the owners of the companies, whoever that is, corporate or individual, they get so wrapped up around the axle of running the company, right. they don't take time away to build these paths for people. And it's what I see anyway, when we are out looking at companies, there's not a lot of, you said a while ago, L&D, is that learning and development? Yes. Okay. You don't see a lot of smaller companies with any kind of career path because everybody is grinding on that thing that they do, whatever that is, building infrastructure or, you know, whatever. Everybody's concentrating on that and not on career path or the skills development. So super important. To your point, there's only a, one other one in the industry that does what you do. Well, there's probably more, but there's really only one other that I know of. Yeah. So point being, that's a, a small group attacking a large problem. So yeah. generally, anybody who goes into business goes into business because they like what they do. 
right? So I'm a very good HVAC technician. I want to own my own company. I'm a very good hairdresser. I want to own my own salon. You don't know what L&D is about. You would, that wouldn't even occur to you, right? <laughs> It'd be like me who's not mechanical knowing what I'm supposed to do in an auto shop. I mean, it wouldn't occur to me. I don't even have any basis of knowledge. So, it, you know, it's not a dinging them for saying, oh, nobody has these career paths because they wouldn't even think to do it. So that's why I'm saying that's why I'm here to kind of enlighten people and say, these are things that you can do pretty easily that makes your company not only more functional, but also more marketable. But the other, the biggest roadblock that I hit with my client companies, and it's because of the size of the company that I choose to work with, which is between 100 and 700 employees, but generally they only have one HR person. And HR is not training and development. It falls under training and development a lot, but hardly anybody ever has a training department. And, and I'm a big proponent of saying you don't need a training department because everything about leadership development is already out there. What I help you do is know where it is and when to apply it. Like the five things I just mentioned, like these in the first five years, this is what you should be teaching everybody. Here's the classes you could take. You could start a LinkedIn learning account. You could hook up with a local consultant. Like I give them options so that they can execute on their own and they don't have to start another function and you know take on another payroll. But HR's got enough on their plate. The other downside I often find is that the HR person in the kind of companies that I work with is not a, an official HR person. Like I just recently ran into a company where it's the guy's mom. Yeah. I'm like, well, we probably have to fix that. <laughs> I'm sure she's been here 21 years, but. <laughs> in my industry anyway, that HR person at a small company does payroll mostly in insurance. Yes, 100%. Compensation benefits that a lot of them don't do performance appraisals, which I mean, I'm, I'm okay either way. I do think performance appraisals when done well are fabulous. Well, we shouldn't call them appraisals. We should really just call them performance conversations. But that's like when the opportunity comes for Gabby, where I say to her, so what have you learned this year? What about it did you like? What didn't you like? Was there something else you'd like to learn? I've got tuition reimbursement funds. I've got you know $5,000 at my disposal as your manager. What can I help you learn? Where else in the company would you like to go? Is there anybody you'd like to shadow? That's what a performance conversation should be be like, right? But again, if you came up through the ranks, you were technically good. Now suddenly you're a manager. When did you ever learn to do that? Never. Never. So Gabby's trying to get out of being the producer of this show. That's what her, her uh, HR conversation's about. So, <laughs> like, my God, how long do I have to do this? It's like purgatory. How, how often do you think those conversations should occur and i will preface that by saying i think it's an ongoing conversation that should not be regimented to you know once a year or whatever i think it has to be a lot of it's individual based in my mind like gabby may need more than abby depending on their personalities depending on what they want to do am i off track with that or is, is that normal thinking i'm 100 percent in agreement and especially Gen Z wants like constant feedback. They want weekly conversations, if not daily. And, and it can be as simple as, how's it going today, Gabby? Anything I can help you with? That's all I have to say. Did, having a roadblock anywhere? Because a lot of young people don't want to admit they're stymied, right? Which is perfectly normal. We were all stymied when we were new, but they don't want to kind of label themselves as being incapable. So just as simple, is there anything that you're, you know, hit a wall with that I can help you with? Sometimes it's just, oh, Gabby, you need to call this guy. I mean, I don't know the answer either, but I know who you call, right? It's, it's as simple as that. Um, I would say weekly, definitely quarterly. I think the problem with the yearly ones is that they're always retrospective. It's always like, well, what did you do in this past year? And let me grade you on that. Whereas I liked it to be a forward thinking thing is, you know, what have you accomplished? What did you like? You said graded on that year 
as yeah. opposed to interacted with during the year. Because, right. you know, I've had them before, especially when I work for a big company. You know, in March, you had this compressor failure. I'm like, I don't even freaking remember March because why the hell did you tell me in March? You know, what, what, it's July. I've seen 20,000 pieces of equipment between now and then. So, so can I share two stories with you about like performance conversations? There's a fellow on LinkedIn that's a friend of mine. His name is Randy Pennington. He's a management consultant. And he just wrote an article last week about his new puppy going to boot camp for two weeks. And the daily three times a day check-in that the trainer does with the puppy and you know, practices the same skills. And then when the puppy, the puppy lives there, when the puppy comes home on the weekend, they get this little log of things that she has learned and they have to continue it over the weekend. And when they hand her back on Monday, they have to say where, and he's like, why don't we do this with new employees? Like, why can't there just be a daily check-in? So people, you know, have this constant reinforcement. And then the other thing is I met a woman in the summer who runs a small company. I think she has like seven or nine employees. It's a firm that helps high schoolers with their college applications. And she said it dawned on her this past year, you know, why am I giving performance appraisals? We're so small, we're really like a, a family anyway. And so in her yearly reviews with her employees, she said to them, what is a passion project that you would like to do that would benefit this company? So she at least put a caveat on it that it can't just be, you know, something you're passionate about, but something, people who want to help college students, and I'm one of those, you're like, there's a passion for that, right? So that it wouldn't be hard for them to say, well, this is what I want to do. So that because I think it would make college or prospective college students lives easier. So she said of the nine passion projects, she actually like implemented two of them, like pot, made them part of the business. And I thought, what, that's so much better than a performance review. What a cool idea. Absolutely. I mean, you're all pulling for the same cause anyway. So. Exactly. You know, I think it all stems, in my opinion, a lot of it stems from a lack of time because yes, absolutely. when somebody gets somebody hired, let's say I'm looking for a podcast producer, Gabby applies, I hire her. Mentally, I'm going, ching, thank God I got her hired. And it's like, I don't put as much emphasis on her after she gets there because that pressure point, that pain point has been temporarily eased. Now, if I don't give her what she needs, I'm going to have that pain point again because she's going to quit. Right. But it all stems from people not prioritizing well or spending their time as they could versus how they are. And again, you don't know what you don't know. So it's just a conversation like this is going to help people when they go, oh, yeah, why don't I check in at 730 every morning? There's no reason I can't do that. <laughs> done. We just helped a whole bunch of people. All right. We're, our work's done. Yep. We just <laughs> now you you run a really interesting business. I you know it's, again, like I said at the beginning, you never know what you don't know because you never knew you needed to know it. But um, I think about people that work on records. You know, we always think about a record coming to get us when we need help. But who takes care of the record? You know, it's like well, I never thought about that till I needed a record. I don't think your business is going to ever from this point forward, be out of work because there's so many small, what'd you say, 99 or so percent of the population works at a small business. So, which is hard to believe because all you ever hear about are, you know, the, the Dow 30 or what have you. Exactly. Or Forbes 100. Everybody I look at on my street 
right here doesn't work for a big company. They all work for a small company by definition, small. So it's really impactful when you think about the impact you can have on futures. And I always go back to the companies, you know, all these people work for a company. But when I see that lady walking her kid down the street, I know where her husband works and they've got that whole package. They've got the family. They don't have just Derek, you know, sometimes I worry that people miss that. They think about, okay, we've got like our company, we have 6,500 employees. But if you do the math, we've got about 20,000 lives we touch with, you know, the, the family piece. And I, that's so strong to me when you think about small businesses, because it's just like it cascades across a business. If a business loses an employee or suffers a hit, you know, financially, it just ripples through the company and can, I heard this weekend, 75% of the Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Well, so are small businesses. You know, they're one 90 day invoice away from having financial difficulty. And you know, that's a whole nother area that small business could use help with is financial management. Because me as a technician, I was really good at being a technician. I didn't know squat about marketing. I didn't know squat about finances or any of that. You know, you had to learn the hard way. I love the fact that there's these, like you in a niche market and a vertical to help people run their business and or exit it successfully. Well, one of the things you made me, you just made me realize is one of the things I talk about with small business owners too, is if you don't create your own leadership pipeline, then you have to hire from the outside. And you are, as a small business, in no position to hire from the outside because it's going to come down to money and you will never win on money against the big companies. So you have to win on the whole package, right? Like you, you have to hire people who embrace your values, look at your goals as their own goals, love to you know, be in business and have decision-making authority or autonomy. You have to raise those people from inside. And they know your culture. You know, somebody that's been with you for five years versus somebody that came in from a competitor or, or an adjacent, they don't know what your Christmas party is all about. You know, for some people, that's a wild party. For some people, it's a crockpot dinner, you know, and that is the culture of that company. And that's what makes small companies is culture. It's that familial environment. It's or, or not, you know, some companies don't like the cult, the family thing because they're like, hell, I get enough family at home. I, I want to be independent of that. But whatever it is, if you want to perpetuate it, then those people have to come up through that system, in my view, in order to fully embrace it or, to your point, be there long enough to become indoctrinated into it. Yep. Yeah, because one person from the outside can really upset the apple cart. Well, we're running up on top of our hour. And as I said, Gabby always has something to do at the top of every hour. She tells me that all the time. You'd be surprised how many times. I've written down a lot of stuff already just from some good stimulating thoughts that you gave me to think about. And I hope other people as well, because it's an important topic. Small business perpetuation is good for our country. That's what makes us tick. So... Bless you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I tell people all the time, it's really not a job, it's a mission. I totally get that. I say my, my industry is a lifestyle. It's not a job. You know, you, you wear it. You don't just go to it. Well, well, Doc, thanks very much. This has been awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, Nanette, as you know, Greg was saying, 
thanks so much for hopping on today. I think even as someone who myself does not own a business, <laughs> but I, I think it's still really, really important information to have and a really important conversation to have and to know about because like you said, a lot of your prospects and and people you work with are your marketing for the future for when they will need to call you. That's a really important conversation. And for me, like now we've had this conversation. So I now know something that I didn't know I needed to know. Exactly. So now you'll start hearing it everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Make sure you tell us how to get in touch with you. So people that do have questions, what, what's the best way to get you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Nanette Miner there. It's M-I-N-E-R. Easy enough. I'm going to uh, look for the LinkedIn Live. I got a flight that day, but I want to see what time it is so I can hopefully jump on. Sure. I'll forward that to you. Now, as for everyone else tuning in, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Straight Outta Crumpton. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple or Spotify Podcasts for more episodes like this. And check out gregcrumpton.com for all of your Greg Crumpton content. This, this, this is straight, straight, straight out of Crumpton with your host, Greg Crumpton.